Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So, uh, we have come to the end of this massive collection of Thomas Jefferson's writing. This, this has to be kind of the largest one-volume collection of his writings anywhere. I'm sure there's the longer, you know, multi-volume collections of his letters and things that you can find, but, you know, at academic libraries, but, you know... You know, I have one student edition of his writing, which is probably about a quarter of this length. And a lot of it is, is commentary on Jefferson's life by historians and stuff is for use in like undergraduate classrooms. You know, but this is, this is a huge collection. It's um, kind of the one you would need. So um, if, you're, if you like American political writing and you're interested in Thomas Jefferson, you know, this is one to, to, to look into getting. Um, but I'm not here to... to to, to pimp for the Library of America, as great as they are. I'm here to talk about these, these works. So we have gone through, we started with his autobiography. We read notes from the state of Virginia. We looked at some of his public papers. We looked at his speeches. We looked at uh, some of his miscellaneous writing. And then we went through a whole bunch of his letters. And I only talked about probably a third of the total letters. There are, there are maybe a half uh, point by point. So. You know, there's there's a lot in here to explore, and you could spend months and months uh, digging into this and 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 reading it alongside the Adams volumes or the Hamilton volume or the Washington volume and uh, or the Payne volume or the other you know volumes of the founders' writings, and you know uh, do a lot with it. I'm not going to go in, in that much detail, obviously. Um, I'm going to move on to to another writer that really interests me in a little bit. Uh, in the next episode, I'll talk about it at the, at the end here. But yeah, let's let's just let's just talk about what's in the the final uh, uh, the final hundred pages or so of of, of these Jefferson letters and the, this, the conclusion of this volume. Um, so this is going to be covering the years eighteen sixteen to eighteen twenty six. So um, you know, I don't know if it's because the editors didn't think there's as many important letters to write or, or to include, or if Jefferson was slowing down. He does complain in these letters a lot about arthritis and pain in his his hands, and, and his letters do get sometimes a little bit shorter. Some are still pretty lengthy, though. Uh, so maybe he was writing fewer letters to people as he got deeper and deeper into his retirement. Um, now, the main project in his life during his retirement was the University, University of Virginia, which uh, broke ground before he, he died. He does talk a little bit about politics. He, he corresponds with the Supreme Court Justice on, on the role of the court in the Constitution and, and what he envisioned for that. Uh, he talks a lot about religion, too, and I, I am aware, I haven't said much about it, but I am aware of, of a kind of a, a theory out there or an argument, which, um, you know, I don't take too seriously, but some people really do, so I, I just want to acknowledge it, that, that somehow Jefferson had some kind of deathbed confession or late in life had, had essentially become a Christian, had denied his old kind of deistic past and, and, and kind of a embraced a more theistic Christianity. And that's and the evidence for that are these letters that are very much showing an interest in theology and in the life of Jesus and his ethics and his morality. Um, I don't see anything in these letters to that, that make me think he's become a theist because most of his letters still, you know, talk about Jesus as an ethical being, as an ethical creature, not as a, not as the divine. Uh, he actually has a lot of criticism for like Calvinism and some other um, um, churches. So I don't I really believe it, but I know there are people out there who have who 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 are convinced that Jefferson had some kind of um, deathbed 
can you know conversion or or, or or near to the end of his life and they'll they'll kind of mine these letters for for evidence of it or mine some of his other kind of more religious interests i i, I just read it as a, a politician who retired who's interested in many things he's got a lot of time to read and he's just reflecting on on religion a bit more and, and that's not doesn't mean someone becomes religious right i'm not religious and i'm interested in theology to a certain degree so um, that that's my take on it, but there's quite a few here on on religion, um, and and they really hover around the idea of the morality of Jesus. Um, he continues to write a lot of letters to John Adams, and uh, they become less and less political over time, and just a little bit more, I guess, general in their in their focus. But um, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go through the events late in his his life, the last decade or so of his life and then I'll go into the letters that I think are are most important as collected in here and give some of my commentary on it. There's not that much to talk about. He's obviously retired. Um, he retired in 18, 1809 and never really got back into any politics uh, very loosely. I mean he commented on politics and he gave advice and he had an interest in public education and he had an interest in even reforming the Virginia Constitution um, but yeah nothing no formal politics. He's, he's really retired. Um, so in, in 1816, he does call for Virginia's constitutional reform, basically to make it more democratic. And I think that's an important uh, kind of uh, transition. Um, he, you know, we just talked last time about how he had this belief in the natural aristocracy. And I'm, I'm sure he still has that belief in a natural aristocracy. But nevertheless, he, he does seem to be uh, calling for a need for a more democratic constitution. Um, uh, so... Um, yeah, so Virginia, in 1816, Virginia destroys Thomas Jefferson's plan for public education, which we talked about last time. But we, it's also, so that's kind of a defeat for him, but it's also the, the year that the University of Virginia begins being built. Um, uh, and he continues to work on the University of Virginia for, for the rest of his life until he wasn't able anymore. In 1819, he completed his, his work on the Jesus's morality. And obviously, he only published notes on the state of Virginia in his life. So all these other writings basically remained unpublished. Like in 1821, he writes his autobiography, which we looked at early on. In 1820, he denounces the Missouri Compromise, and he starts to express more and more fear of the centralization of the, of the government. And this is going to lead in 1825 to his writing of the Declaration and Protest, which we indeed looked at um, earlier in this, this series. Um, he helps uh, President Monroe formulate the Monroe Doctrine, and we're going to talk about if this is a kind of continuation of his, uh, the, the, the imperialism I saw in a lot of his career, or something different, and, and what he says about the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, General Lafayette visited in 1824, and I think in 1825 he was still there, and Jefferson you know, interacted with him during that visit. In 1825, the University of Virginia opened. Um, and in 1826, he died deeply in debt. Uh, his estate was essentially broken up, uh, except for the Hemming slaves that he freed, um, his children, essentially, I think some of their uncles. Um, he, his, his other slaves were sold to pay off his debts, and, and his other assets were sold off to, to pay for a lot of his outstanding debts. That's a problem he never quite dealt with throughout his, throughout his life. Um, at least his, his, his later life. So um, that's, that brings us to the end of Jefferson's life in terms of his biography. So we, we've seen in these letters kind of the whole uh, path of Jefferson's career and, and, and life. Um, so as for the letters, uh, there's quite a few here that, that are rather interesting and worth talking about. 
Uh, the first is uh, to Benjamin Austin, and this is uh, really the clearest statement that he's changed his mind about manufacturing and the role of manufacturing in the United States. Um, you know, basically, the his original idea was kind of a free trade model where the United States would have low tariffs, free trade with all countries, providing what it could provide through raw materials and agricultural goods. The ideal American would be the farmer, not the industrial worker. We would prevent industry from developing through this kind of free trade. We just import what we need, right? But I think his lessons of his presidency, the lessons of the Napoleonic Wars and the impact on the United States, the growth of manufacturing and the fact that it didn't you know, bring the house down, uh, you know, just slowly convinced him that maybe he may still prefer the agrarian lifestyle for most Americans, but that he thought the manufacturing had a role. And the alternative, actually, was dependence on countries like Great Britain for manufactured goods, right? Now, ideally, you can kind of have this free trade model, but in truth, you know, if you're dependent on England for manufactured goods and you have that war between England and France, how do you not support England, right? Now, or how do you not get pulled in to conflict with England, as in the case of the War of 1812? So he starts to, sh to, to change on that. He also just admits that, that the country's changing. And because the country's changing, um, so should our thoughts about, about manufacturing. He says, um, we must now place the manufacturer by the side of the agriculturalist. The former question is suppressed, or rather assumed a new form. Shall we make our own comforts or go without them at the will of foreign nations? That he, therefore, who is now against domestic manufacturing must, for his reducing us either to dependence on a foreign nation or be clothed in skins and to live like wild beasts in dens and caverns, end quote. And, and that makes sense. Um, you know, the agrarian ideal is always kind of uh, kind of a weird, uh, a weird dream, although certainly culturally very important in, in the American mind. Um, in a letter he wrote to John Adams in January 11th, 1816, he... Um, Oh, and by the way, with these Adams letters, I, I finished reading them all. I was kind of hoping for some more of a feeling of kind of old men playing chess in the park kind of kind of letters. And some of them have a bit of that, but, you know, these, these are a little bit more serious than that. So it's just their first letter. What made me think about this was their first letter had Jefferson's advice to him to, like, to ride his horse every day because he rides his horse every day to stay healthy. And, you know, how old men talk about their, you know, their, their physical problems and, and, and all that and give advice to each other about these things. Uh, yeah, we didn't get that too much, but uh, nevertheless, their, their their writings are interesting uh, to each other, and at least uh, from the Jefferson side, which is what I have. Um, this letter, January eleventh, eighteen sixteen, really focuses, I think, on his either optimism or pessimism. He certainly thinks that things are going to go down in in Europe. That despite the decline of, of Bonapartism and the restoration of the Congress of Vienna and the the greater power of those monarchs, those traditional monarchs, he thought kind of the, the fires of liberty would spread and this would uh, basically, you know, cause conflict in, in Europe. And, and he thinks the United States needs to be somewhat prepared for this. Um, uh, he also thinks it's, it's like kind of a united people unified by Republican principles really cannot be defeated by, by a monarchy. Um, but he uses certain language here, which, uh, of course, piqued my interest, and that is he talks about these rebellions as a hydra, right? And one of my favorite books about this period of history, actually, is, is The Many-Headed Hydra by Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Radiker, and it's almost 20 years old now, but it's still, I think, one of the, 
the, the best books about uh, in Atlantic history, about the working class in Atlantic history. And they use the same metaphor of the Hydra to talk about all these working class people in rebellion. Here, Jefferson's using it to talk about um, these kind of Republican movements in Europe. And of course, over the course of the, the post-Vienna settlement, you're going to have rebe rebellions for 30 years until the revolutions of 1848. Um, so... Um, yeah, he doesn't really see a restoration to 89 as, as, as very practical. And so this is a kind of interesting letter reflecting on just the news from Europe, if you will. Um, uh, Joseph C. Cabell, he wrote a little bit after that in February 2nd, 1816. And this particular letter uh, talks on a variety of issues um, about really state government, I think. And it, it kind of feeds into what he's going to think about later on to have a a, a renewed or a, a reformed Virginia state constitution. Um, and he, he really insists on this throughout his career until he dies, is that there's certain things the federal government does, there's certain things that the state governments do, and there's certain things the local governments do, and, and really that these should be separated. There shouldn't be too much overlapping here. He writes, let the national government be entrusted with the defense of the nation and its foreign and federal relations. The state governments with the civil rights, laws, police, and administration of what concerns the state generally, and the counties with the local concerns of the county in each ward direct the interest in itself. But what's really interesting here, now obviously there's a big problem in letting states deal with civil rights, as we know from 20th century American history. But I still got something interesting here in that he sees each of these as kind of mini republics. The elementary republics of the ward, the county republics, the state republics, and the republic of the union would form a gradation of authority standing each on the basis of law, holding everyone its delegated share of power in constituting truly a system of fundamental balances and checks for the government. So at the end of the day, he is calling for a more democratic system in which you have more power at the really, really local level. So I think even anarchists can kind of read this and, and maybe not agree with you know, 90% of what he says, but to see in this idea of a bottom-up Republican order instead of kind of a one based on the virtuous leadership of, of someone like a Washington or a Jefferson, and then it's kind of trickling down. He's, he's kind of moved his opinion, I think, to a more bottom-up uh, and that in a truly more democratic one. It's not a word he uses that much. And of course, we know the founders feared democracy, but I get the sense that Jefferson's moving a little bit towards a more Republican uh, view. Um, on April 8th, he wrote Adams again, and I'm going to look at every single Adams letter because uh, they seem important. But this one's mostly about religion. Um, and he, he talks about different religious books he's reading and, and various thoughts about that. He does mention Ledyard going to to Russia with the Seattle fur trade and stuff, uh, and some of the more Pacific exploration and, and all that in, in this letter as well. But largely, this is about, about religion and, and theology. He kind of jokes at the end of, of, after writing about religion, and that, you know, you confess you wrote me a really trivial letter, and I've responded with a very, very trivial letter, and that's, he's kind of making fun of religion, I think, here by, by talk, saying his, his commenting on theology is trivial. So again, I'm not sure he's converted in any sense. I just think he's got uh, he's got a legitimate interest in in religion, as as anyone has a right to, to do when they have have the time to explore it. Um, um, now, in another letter, April twenty fourth, eighteen sixteen, to P. S. Dupont de Nemours, he's written to him several times on on various international issues, especially on Latin American revolutions. And this letter continues in that, that vein of speaking about the Latin American revolutions and the governments of, of Latin America. 
Um, and as always, he's fairly optimistic about what's going on in Latin America, but he also sees extreme differences in the types of governments established there versus the one, the one in North America. But he's got a really nice statement here on the overall role of government in his view. He says, Liberty, truth, propriety, honor are declared to be the four cardinal principles of your society. I believe with you that morality, compassion, generosity are innate elements of the human constitution, that there exists a right independent of force, that a right to property is founded in our natural wants, in the means with which we are endowed to satisfy those wants, and the rights to which we acquire by those means without violating the similar rights in the sensible beings, that no one has the right to obstruct another, exercising his faculties innocently for the relief of sensibilities made a part of his nature, that justice is the fundamental law of society, and the majority oppressing individual guilty of a crime abuses its strength, and by acting on the law of the strongest breaks upon the foundations of society. That action by the citizen and person in affairs within their reach and competence, and in all others by representation chosen immediately and removable by themselves constitutes the essence of a republic. That all governments are more or less republican in proportion as this principle enters more or less into their composition. And that a government by representation is capable of extension over a greater surface of country than one of any other form. End quote. And, and so he, he's, this is framed as kind of advice for other countries, but also a, a pretty direct statement of his vision of, of republicanism. But uh, he's got a line in here which strikes me. A lot of it's just the same old, you know, yeah, you know platitudes about, about Republican governance, but that you 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 give to rep you give to delegates, you give to representatives that which you can't, for whatever reason, you know, do in face to face direct democracy. He, he has got a little bit of a line here where he says, you know, people should be able to handle for themselves what, you know, at the local level they can handle themselves, right? He says. Uh, that an action by the citizens and a person in affairs within their reach and competence and in all others by representatives, right? And I read that as, as some type of local uh, direct democracy. I don't know how else to, to really read it, unless he just means kind of direct action, which, which may be, may be um, the way. Or maybe it's being apolitical about it. Maybe it's this kind of this right-wing libertarian idea that, you know, society can't really interfere with me in anything I want to do. But I don't want to really read it that way. And, and maybe I'm twisting... His words but so be it um, all right he's got another letter to John Taylor so many of these to this guy John Taylor um, this was May 28th 1816 uh, basically this is also about the need to expand republicanism and this is going to feed to his his effort to reform the Virginia Constitution uh, he thinks that the, the state constitution is not democratic enough um, he talks about the people who can't vote, and he says, uh, these people are excluded like helots from the rights of representation. And as society were instituted from the soil and not from the men inhabiting it, or one half of those could dispose of those rights and the will of the other half without their consent. So the problem, of course, in, well, problem or not, but the reality was, you know, in most of these states, if you didn't have property, you couldn't vote, right? And it was only in the 20s and 30s that all men got suffrage got the right to vote. And Jefferson here is calling for that. He says to not have the right to vote is essentially to be a helot. Um, and and that, those were, of course, the Spartan slaves, right? The Spartans, as they expanded, conquered people and, and, and enslaved them. Um, and this falls up with his letter to Samuel Kirchval, where he argues for very directly for the need to reform the Virginia Constitution, again, to make it 
much more democratic. But I don't want to get into the details of what he's proposing here. This failed anyways. Um, and I don't know when these kind of more democratic reforms were made in Virginia. But he does say two things that are general principles that are, are really relevant, I think. And one is, quote, I'll just read it directly. Some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of the preceding age a wisdom more than human and suppose what they did to it to be beyond amendment. Now, Jefferson, by this point, is one of the last survivors of surviving signatories of the Declaration of Independence. Adams was another one. Um, and of course, the people who wrote the Constitution were a little bit younger in general, so more of them were around, but they were still pretty, by this point, pretty fairly distant, right? A generation, more than a generation back. So they were already having that kind of, the, they're becoming revered figures. And with it, the Constitution, right? And it's even worse today, right? Not that I'm saying we, you know, I do still think that changing the Constitution now would be a, probably be a disaster given the political realities and and I think we might understand worse uh, than um, than what we have more you know more the power of, of capital would be more entrenched in a in a rewritten constitution at this point given the nature of politics um, but that doesn't mean we he's not right that we shouldn't these are just pieces of paper these are experiments these are things that are meant to be changed to be rethought to be experimented with and and governments for the living and that's what he says on the next page essentially is that um you know there's a majority that makes a has a general will and some time later there's a new general will that emerges he's not using the rousseauian language of general will here but he is saying you know there'll be a new majority a new consensus will emerge and with that we'll have to come a new set of laws and this is his overall justification for throwing out the Virginia Constitution and coming up with with something new so um yeah that that covers uh some of the letters he wrote in in 1816 now for the other years there's not as many letters so we're going to zip by the years a little bit quicker for, for whatever reason he was pretty busy writing letters in 1816 at least um, if we take this collection as a general representation of what he really wrote there's only for instance there's only really one from 1817 that's that's interesting uh and that's one to lafayette uh where he 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 talks about and even kind of he, he talks about this kind of era of good feelings right so this is you have like the contentious jefferson and adams years then you have the madison presidency where the country kind of comes together on a new consensus. And then the Monroe years are sometimes called that era of good feelings, right? Because there really wasn't a political rancor. The Federalist Party had basically fallen apart. Uh, you had maybe factions and, and tensions within the Democratic-Republican uh, majority. Um, and out of that is going to come the, the Democratic Party and the Whig Party, right, in the, in the Jacksonian years. But generally, there's not the political rancor that, that, that came before. <clears throat> Or I guess it's going to be John Quincy Adams and then, then Jackson and Van Buren who are really going to reignite the, uh, the bad feelings of politics. So he, t he talks a little bit about this to, to Lafayette, but mostly he's, he's kind of gloating about the end of federalism, right? He actually kind of blames the British for this. He says, well, blames is the wrong term, but he praises the British. He says, like, but the British, by going to war with us, basically put the last nail in the coffin of federalism. But its best efforts have been the complete suppression of party. The Federalists who were truly American and their great mass was so have separated from their brethren who were mere Anglo men and have received with cordiality, cordiality into the Republican ranks. Even Connecticut as a state and the last one expected to yield its steady habits was chosen a Republican governor and a Republican legislature. 
Massachusetts indeed still lags. Um, so, but he's he's pretty optimistic about maybe he maybe he thinks at this point that the kind of party factionalism is going to die down in America. I don't know. Um, by the time he died, it's already kind of picking back up. Um, but who knows how much he's paying attention to to that stuff um, in his final days. Um, yeah. So there's a. This is the only. This next one I'm going to look at is the only letter I've seen dealing really closely with gender. I mean, he's written women before. He's written Abigail Adams and, and what was that woman's name? Mar uh, Maria Cosway. Yeah, Maria Cosway he wrote. Uh, but, you know, actually talking about women's issues. Uh, and he writes it to Nathaniel Burwell, March 14th, 1818. And the question, he's basically, it seems he was posed a question, what's your view on women's education, right? And he actually admits, oh, well, I never thought about that. So here this guy is. He's ancient, right? Like 80 or 70-something years old. And is he old? Yeah, I think, you know, he's pretty old by this point. And he's never thought about female education. So there you go. He says, I only thought about it with my education of my daughter. Like, you know, it's something that fathers, in, in, you know, give to children is, is education, which I think is kind of funny. For someone who was obsessed with education, he never once sat down and thought, should we educate the ladies? Um, so, whatever. That that's it's just kind of surprised me to hear him um, say that. Um, and then he immediately just goes in in this letter, basically complaining about what's holding back female education. First, they read too many novels. Then they're too sentimental. Then they kind of, um, um, uh, yeah, they're kind of well, the, the ornaments and the amusements of life. They're too focused on that, you know, dancing, drawing, music. Um, later on, he says, I, say, I need say nothing of household economy in which the mothers of our country are generally skilled and generally careful to instruct their daughters. We all know its value and that diligence and dexterity and all its processes are inestimable treasures. Now, my reading of this letter, though, is that he never says, you know, that's a good idea. Maybe we should send the girls to school, too. It, it's basically, first, the girls are kind of interested in silly stuff and then the stuff they need they can learn at home because mom will teach them that so it's a pretty unfortunate letter not a gender egalitarian by by any stretch of the imagination but um it is interesting that he, he seems to think that women of the time were too drawn to sentiment because that's what mary wollstonecraft thought as well but for very different reasons she thought uh sentiment was holding back women's education and they needed to liberate themselves from that so they could get a proper education that Society made them sentimental. It wasn't that they're sentimental by nature, right? Jefferson here seems to uh, really see something much more natural in the way uh, the women around him acted, I guess. I, I don't know where he's giving evidence from, but yeah, he's not the kind of guy you want to go to. I don't think there'll be a book out soon like Jefferson Feminist, um, at least from, from what I've read. Who knows, you know, some dissertation somewhere down the road might, might think that's a good idea. Um, um, but he's got a lot on education in these these letters. Um, for instance, he wrote to um, Dr. Vine Utley. Uh, he, I think, somehow involved at the University of Virginia, perhaps. But um, he talks about the you know the habits of of hard students. He calls them basically bad students, right? And he talks about how I've lived so temporally. You know, it doesn't you know, let's let's um, not mention his. For, well, let's not say too much about his relationship with Sally Hemings and, and how temperate that was. But, uh, you know, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't do all these things that, you know, that 
bad students do, and if good students will also have these good habits. So, um, but you know, I don't like Jefferson as as the moralist. I, I I prefer him as the practical kind of planner and implementer. I, I my favorite parts of these this collection was actually seeing him as a legislator to see him actually trying to implement laws. And I, I prefer when he's talking about making the library, the University of Virginia uh, or something like that instead of uh, just, uh, you know, kind of trying to be this moralist. I don't know if he feels at this time in his life he has to be that way. Um, there's not that many letters. I mean, it's not like he's obsessed with this stuff. It's just sometimes he's asked and he, he kind of comments on that. Uh, in another letter to, uh, to a guy named John Brazier, this was August 24, 19, 1819, he, he talks about the value of, of like the Greeks, the classics, Greek, Greek and Latin languages and things. And we touched on that before in an earlier letter where he kind of says it's, it's, it has its value kind of as a, a garnish of life, a, a garnish of intuitive education, but it's not really practical. It doesn't have value. And he reinforces this idea here. Actually, he's a bit harsher on the classics when asked or he asked himself rhetorically, but what do these things, but to whom are these things useful? And he answered, certainly not to all men. They are conditions of life to which they must be forever estranged. And there are epochs of life too, after which the endeavors to attain them would be simply a great misemployment of time. Their acquisition should be the occupation of our early years only when the memory is susceptible of deep and lasting impressions. To a moralist, they're valuable because they have furnished ethical writings, highly and justly esteemed. Although in my opinion, the moderns are far advanced beyond them in this line of science. Um, now, as you might recall, if you've been following along this podcast, Thomas Paine said the same thing about the classics, but he was even more direct. Like, we shouldn't even read this nonsense. We got better philosophers now, and it's a waste of time to learn Greek or Latin. I mean, learning French at least has a practical purpose, right? Um, because people in the world speak French. No one speaks ancient Greek or, or Latin anymore, so don't learn that stuff. Um, you know, translation, if you need it, translation is good enough which I'm kind of sympathetic with uh, as someone who's really bad at languages. But at the same time, Jefferson at least is acknowledging that for certain people, it is interesting garnish and it's something that enriches their life in a way. And so it has value there. It's just not value. It's not a value to kind of dump it on all the, all the kids as they go through you know, school. Um, what else here do we have? I'm, I'm skipping a few here just because there's so many. Um, to William Short, he, he talks about Epicureanism, where he admits that I am too an Epicurean. This was written in October 1819. Uh, and, you know, Epicureanism is, is kind of tied with hedonism, this idea of you seek all pleasure. But as anyone who's taken freshman philosophy knows, Epicure, the Epicurean idea of, of pleasure was very different than kind of the hedonistic bacchanalia kind of thing. It was, it was a life of restraint, of friendship, of, of of, of, you know, simple meals, simple pleasures, conversation, that that was more like the better foundation for a long-term meaningful life and, and a lifetime of maximizing pleasure. Um, but yeah, he, um, and then he actually gives a little syllabus here of the doctrines of Epicurus. It's physical, it's metaphysical, his moral, and basically just those two, his metaphysical and his moral beliefs. So... Um, just after saying, you know, we shouldn't read the Greeks anymore, he, you know, he obviously did, and he obviously understands them uh, fairly well. All right, um, jumping ahead to August 15th, 1820, almost a year later, he wrote uh, a kind of interesting philosophical letter to John Adams. 
Uh, it starts out with just kind of him talking about his plans for the University of Virginia and how that's going and his, his, some of his ideas on its curriculum and, and all that. And I think it's kind of an interesting conversation. I, again, I don't know what Adams is writing to him about it, but um, Jefferson is giving that detail and it seems Adams is at least somewhat curious about that. Um, even kind of justifies putting military naval uh, department with the mathematics department. So he's really getting in the details. And I love that part of Jefferson where he, he's getting to that really intimate planning, like the curriculum planning. He wasn't just the, the visionary who thought up the University of Virginia. He actually, you know, worked out these, these issues in his head, like, uh, you know, where the departments would be, where the students would live, what's, how big the buildings would be, what's the best climate to, to study in and all that stuff. So it's great. Um, now, the second part, the second half of the letter, though, gets more philosophical, and he kind of jokingly says, you know, I was kind of baffled and I couldn't sleep because of your, your weird letter where you wrote all this nonsense about, about um, kind of immaterial existence and ghosts and souls and stuff. And, and he responds basically with an argument for, for materialism. So if you're, a material, if you're a strict materialist the way Jefferson writes it here, I don't see how you can be a Christian. I, I don't, so I don't really, again, I don't see much evidence for this argument that he somehow made a late life conversion, at least not in 1820. Um, he writes, when, when once we quit the basis of sensation, all is in the wind. To talk of immaterial existence is to talk of nothings. To say that a human soul, angels, God, are immaterial is to say that they are nothings or that there is no God, no angels, no soul. I cannot reason otherwise, but I believe I'm supported by my creed of materialism by Locke, Tracy, and Stuart. At what age of the Christian church this heresy of immaterialism, this masked atheism crept in, I don't know. Um, now, obviously he's not a total atheist, so he thinks there's a God, but somehow he thinks that God must be have a material function. So, you know, either it's like a deistic God who created the world and therefore is creation is kind of the closest we have to access God um, or in that there's not spirits and ghosts and stuff floating around or maybe it's some kind of most pantheistic idea where, where God is in in the natural world around us um, but he kind of ends with a, a kind of whole, like waving his hand saying I don't you know whatever it's you know it's philosophy right it's 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 an interesting game for for us to play with but he, I'm not sure he sees it as that valuable at the end of the day um, now, like, like we see, he's not doing that much politics here. His, if, if he does do politics in this period of his life, it tends to be fairly reflective politics. Um, but he did get involved with a couple issues in the Monroe years. And one of them is um, the Missouri Compromise question. And he writes to Albert Gallatin. Gallatin was, of course, Jefferson's secretary of the treasurer and uh, someone who supported his overall economic vision. Um, but he's very, very fearful of 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 the Missouri Compromise. Now, it's in a, in a sense he understands there's going to be growing sectional tension about slavery, and he thinks the Missouri Compromise would expand it. His solution is totally inadequate from any moral stance because he's basically saying the Missouri Compromise is telling Southerners what to do with their property, and that's just going to piss them off and, and increase rancor. Um, even at this, his late day, he's not really able to stand up for a strong. A kind of national policy on on slavery you know the Missouri Compromise if anything it opened up the door to westward expansion of slavery right I guess if you look at the map it doesn't look like much right just the current state I think of is it Arkansas is is was below the Missouri Compromise line now of course after the Mexican War that opens up all that land to 
to the west and there's a whole debate does the missouri compromise line go to the pacific or does it just stop uh, where it was originally established um, he writes this um, if accepted on the condition that missouri shall expunge from it the prohibition of free people of color from immigration to the state it will be expunged and it will be quieted until the advance of some new state shall present the question again if rejected unconditionally missouri assumed independent self-government in congress after pouting a while must receive them on equal footing of the original states end quote so uh so he thinks there's a bit uh all this is going to do is going to be there's going to be a series of conflicts each time a new state tries to enter and this d debate will come up again and and again um but he basically doesn't think um well a little bit earlier in the letter he says i mean he's, he doesn't think the federal government has this power is how, is how i read it um, for if Congress goes once out of the Constitution to arrogate the right of regulating the conditions of the inhabitants of the states, it may, its majority may, and probably will next declare the condition of all men within the United States shall be that of freedom, in which case all the whites south of the Potomac and Ohio must evacuate their states. End quote. Total nonsense. <laughs> but uh, that's what is in his mind. He thinks uni like unilaterally emancipation, like what happened in in. 63 to 65, you know, depending 63 or 65, depending on which state you want to use, uh, would force all the white people to to flee. I mean, he really doesn't believe that black people and white people can coexist except as slaves and masters, and it's it's so weird, even by the eight, 1820s, that he's thinking this way, that he's like almost no progress on on the slavery issue. I don't see it. I mean, maybe there's nuance and and and. You know, we can go through line by line and check every footnote and, and read more of his letters, and maybe we can find some new ones. I don't see much growth here. I think he's um, basically at a loss of any reasonable solution to um, to slavery, which would be you know freeing black people and then incorporating them into the republic, uh, as was done in the in, in the 1860s or attempted to do in Reconstruction. Um, but, and, and then at the end he concludes, amidst this prospect of evil, I'm glad to see one good effect. It's brought the necessity of some plan of general emancipation and deportation more home to the minds of our people than it's ever had before. So, 1820, still thinking deportation. And he doesn't change. I, I, he doesn't change. So, spoiler alert. Um, but I don't know what to say about this anymore. I've been talking about Jefferson for so long. He, he disappoints me as much as he impresses me. Certainly, um, though I, I really get offended by this idea that we can just forgive people like, oh, there was just their time, right? When there were plenty of anti-slavery voices that Jefferson could have read and been exposed to by 1820. Walker's appeal was 20 years old by this point, right? I forget the exact date. Um, there were other people talking about you had groups like the Quakers. Of course, Jefferson seems to dislike the Quakers because he sees them all as closeted Tories. But there were anti-slavery positions active as well as the actions of slaves in places like haiti where they made it clear that not only did they not want to be slaves and they would fight for their freedom but that they could self-rule and they're perfectly capable of self-rule anyways um moving ahead on this uh 1821 he wrote a letter to james breckenridge on the university and the schools basically this is about the goals of public education I don't know. I thought I had more to say about it when I jotted down notes on that. 
Um, but once again, he's, he comes off as a planner. He comes up as someone who has an idea of a whole, of a whole system of education of different layers and levels. Although that was rejected by the Virginia legislature, he still holds on to this belief that you kind of need a base, like every county, every ward needs to have its own school. And then, of course, the university will, have, will be at the state level. And you can kind of um, work your way up from there. Work your way up from the, the lower levels based on merit, is I guess what I'm trying to say. And that's all that was really important in his 1821 letters. 1822, um, he he makes a really, to a guy named Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse, he makes a very, I, I think, uh, sympathetic uh, review of the beliefs of, of Unitarians. And he makes some other comments later on about Unitarianism, Unitarians, which show he has some sympathy for it. Right. Uh, I'm not particularly familiar with the Unitarian vision. I, I, I think it's anti-Trinitarian. That's where the Unitarian uh, phrase comes from. That's really my thought. My thought. I thought that's what Unitarians believe. But Jefferson here writes that there are three gods, <laughs> that good works and love our neighbors are nothing. Um, oh, no, sorry. I, I'm reading this wrong. So he just he thinks the Unitarians just get to the core beliefs of, of of Christianity. There's only one God; He's perfect. There's this future state of rewards and punishment that to love God with hearts and neighbors is the sum of religion. Oh, then he says, well, this compares to the religions that emerge, like Calvin. And he says that there are three gods, that good works don't matter, that faith is everything, that really reason and religion is is unlawful and not useful. So yeah, so he thinks Unitarianism a better overall religion because it basically simplifies it and it gets to the heart of, of Christ's message. Actually, he never uses the word Christ, does he? Usually it's just Jesus. He'll say Christian, but I, he always says Jesus. I think he's pretty consistent on that, but I might be wrong. There may be moments where he says it, but by and large, he seems to say Jesus. Not even Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. Right? His account of Jesus' morality was Jesus of Nazareth, not, not Jesus Christ. Um, there, there's two letters here, and I'm not going to dwell on them too much um, because it's kind of behind my, beyond my skill to fully um, digest. And that they're both to Justice William Johnson of the Supreme Court, and they're both on the role of the Supreme Court in, in the role of the Supreme Court in in the current Constitution. And the question is, has the Supreme Court overreached uh, from its found, from its foundation and what the Constitution allowed it? And Jefferson had a lot to say about this. He does have some interesting ideas here. He, he certainly thinks judges should be on politics, right? Um, he also thinks that decisions should be in the people as much as possible. He writes, the ultimate arbiter is the people of the union assembled by their deputies in convention at the call of Congress or two thirds of the states. Let them decide to which they mean to give an authority claimed by two of their organs. And that has been a peculiar wisdom and felicity of our constitution to have provided this peaceable appeal where other nations set to force, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't fully deny that there's a place for the courts to, to intervene. Um, but he does think when that happens that these, the vote should not be behind closed doors, that they should be open. Um, you know, he says, why not should every judge be asked his opinion and give it from the bench, if only by yay and nay? Besides ascertaining the fact of his opinion, which the public has the right to know, in order to judge whether he's impeachable or not. It would show whether the opinions were unanimous or not, and thus settle more exactly to weight of their authority. 
So I guess Supreme Court decisions, you didn't know who voted. It was just like a decision and a, and what was made. And if there was a, you know, a split vote, people didn't know. Now they do, right? Now if there's a, you know, if you hear in the news there's a five to four decision, we know who voted each way. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one. There's another letter to this guy as well on similar issues. Uh, like has it gone beyond um, oh there was one to John Adams I, don't know, I missed one it came before the William Johnson letter on Calvin where he's, he's complaining about John Calvin a little bit more uh, calling him even an atheist uh, or demonism so that's fun picking on Calvin I don't, I don't know what was um, Adams's religion I guess he was congregationalist so here's Wikipedia. Adams was raised Congregationalist since his ancestors were Puritans. Um, he believed that regular church service was beneficial to man's moral sense. Um, historian Gordon S. Wood writes, although both Jefferson and Adams denied the miracles of the Bible and the divinity of Christ, Adams always retained a respect for the religiosity of people that Jefferson never had. In fact, Jefferson tended in private company to mock religious freedom. And he's doing it here um, in this letter, obviously. In his retirement years, Adam moved away from some of the Puritan sentiments. In his youth, he became a Unitarian, rejecting the divinity of Jesus. All right, so maybe he agrees with um, um, Jefferson here, but Jefferson could be trolling a little bit, right? Uh, you know, picking on his Puritan forefathers for their belief in Calvin. Um, maybe a more meaningful letter to Adams was written in... Let me find it. In 1823, September 4th, where he really, again, sees the future of revolution to be expanding. What, like, he's pretty much had that consistent idea that there has to be renewals of liberty. And those renewals will be violent from time to time. Revolutions are better than slavery. And this kind of wave of revolution is coming. And he's always had this optimism about this. And he thinks that's still the case. Um, you know, he, he thinks the blood's going to flow. To put it put it lightly, he said, um, "This is now well understood to be a necessary check on kings, whom they will probably think it more prudent to chain and tame than to exterminate. To attain all this, however, rivers of blood must yet flow, and years of desolation pass over. Yet the object is worth rivers of blood, and yet the and years of desolation for what inheritance so valuable can man leave to his posterity." So, a little bit loose with the the rivers of blood uh, language, but. You know, he was a revolutionary, so I'll give him that. Um, let's talk about the Monroe Doctrine. He wrote to James Monroe on what will now be called the Monroe Doctrine, right? And, and you'll, if you don't know what the Monroe Doctrine was, or if you don't remember, this was simply a foreign policy declaration by President Monroe that Europe should stay out of the New World, the Americas, probably, I should say, not the New World. Um, and the kind of the historical question of this is this kind of the America standing up for these independent states and, and wanting to be kind of a leader of republics. Uh, that's kind of, I guess, the more Whiggish optimistic view. Or is the United States at this point claiming the Americas as their domain, their sphere of influence and th threatening Europeans to to leave now? Of course, Roosevelt will expand the Monroe Doctrine with the Roosevelt Corollary, which will kind of move in that direction and make it a, a harsher um, kind of uh, 
you know, we can intervene in Latin America if we want. Europe can't, but we can. But um, now Jefferson is aware of this critique. He's aware that people are going to think that this is like essentially a sphere, uh, grabbing a hemisphere by the United States. And he asks, do we have to ask ourselves the question, do we wish to acquire to our own confederacy any one or more of the Spanish provinces? I candidly confess that I have ever looked on Cuba as the most interesting addition which could ever be made to our system of states. The control with which Florida points, this island would have given us over the Gulf of Mexico and countries and isthmus boring on it, as well as the waters that flow into it, would fill up the measure of our political well-being. Yet, as I am sensible that this can never be attained, even with her own consent, but by war and its independence, which is our second interest, can be secured without it. I have no hesitation in abandoning my first wish to future chances and accepting this independence with peace and friendship in England rather than its association. I could honestly therefore declare in this declaration proposed that we aim not at the acquisition of any of the possessions, that we stand, well, that will not stand in the way of any amicable arrangement between them and the mother country. So, um, despite, I mean, there's, despite saying, oh, we don't, it's like a but, right? He says, Oh, I would love to have Cuba. It's just so juicy there. It'd be a, no, such a nice state to, to add to it, our colony, to add to our territory. But we're not really interested in the Caribbean, right? Um, of course, 100 years later, the United States is occupying Haiti um, and, and intervene regularly into Latin America. So we know the end result of the Monroe Doctrine uh, is going to be U.S. imperialism in Latin America. And the U.S. is an imperial power, and Jefferson a sense doesn't deny the attractiveness to him, you know, his attraction to an idea of a little empire in the Caribbean. Um, but, you know, you can take his word for him or not. I mean, the, the, the historical outcome of the Monroe Doctrine, I think, is clear enough. Um, uh, 1824, do I have to go back to this issue? Uh, he, he writes to Jared Sparks, once again, um, he's writing about emancipation and and emigration. He's still thinking Africa, talking about Sierra Leone. He's looking at how to actually fund this, but he says we got to do it quick. So he's still talking about ethnic cleansing. I, I've been saying that in previous episodes. I haven't repeated it to today yet. Jefferson is talking about nothing less than ethnically cleansing the United States. And he says like, we've got to do it now because this problem's only going to get worse. He says, there are in the United States a million and a half people of color in slavery. To send off the whole of them would be, um, would be difficult, right? But he thinks it's, it's practical. But he says later on, to move here, this is what he says at the end of the letter. A million and a half are within their control, but six millions, with the majority of them now living, will see them attained, and one million of them fighting men will say, we will not go, end quote. So, he says, if we wait till there's six million slaves, of course, when slavery ended in the United States, there was four million. So had slavery continued for another generation, you know, six million uh, probably would have been a million of fighting age saying we will not go. So he's he's acknowledging they don't want to go and they wouldn't want to go. He's acknowledging that for them, you know, the U.S. is their home, even if it's a, a homeland that's exploited them and built itself off their 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 blood and sweat um, for no money uh, for generations. Despite that, that is their home and they, don't want, they wouldn't want to go anywhere and they would fight to defend it. I mean, it's just, it's right in front of his face, the solution, it, but he still can't see it. And, and now he's, he's admitting in this letter, we're going to move one, one and a half million people who don't want to be moved. 
It's just now they can't resist. It's, it's really a disgusting letter, to be honest. Um, and I would say, you know, he's just an old man, you know, shouting off his racist nonsense, but he's been doing it his whole career, right? All right. Um, all right. Let's, let's put it close to this. This has gotten, Jefferson put me in a bad mood just now. Uh, there's a few last things. He writes to James Madison in 1826 as he's dying, presumably, um, basically begging Madison to do something to help him with his debts, and after he dies to do something to, to preserve his estate as, as much intact as he can. It's kind of a very pleading letter. Um, and then he's got another itty-bitty letter on, on slavery to a guy named James Heaton, um, where He's got a little bit more on we here where he just says, I've been talking about this forever, we know. Um, uh, but he's kind of saying, well, it's going to be the next generation that figures it out. I'm, I'm checking out any day now. Um, June 24th, his last letter, uh, he's actually invited to Washington uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of American independence. And he, of course, has to decline because of his sickness and his poor health. And, of course, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence would be the day Jefferson dies, um, July 4th, 1826. So I don't know if there's anything poetic in that. I think it's just coincidence, but uh, sentimental patriots can, can give that all the meaning they want. All right, that does it for Jefferson. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else to say about him. Um, that I haven't already said over the last hours and hours. Um, I've probably been talking with Jefferson for 10 hours by this point, if you add up all these, all these episodes, maybe more. So, um, yeah, come to the end of what I think is the longest Library of America volume I, I looked at. 15, actually with all the notes and everything, 1,600 pages. I've only really read 1,500 of them. The rest were just um, supplementary material. Um, so what's next? What's next? Well, I'm going to continue with political writing. Um, and we're going to do, as far as I know, the only non-American collected in the Library of America, or so the, at least the only person who hasn't claimed, who hasn't been American at one point. And, you know, of course, Henry Adams is, not Henry Adams, uh, Henry James is an interesting case who, you know, he's, or Chandler, these are people who spent a lot of time in England, right? And kind of maybe lost some of their American identity, and sometimes they get seen more as English writers than American writers. So, or Lakfandi O'Hearn, Lakfandi O'Hearn, who all over the world died in Japan. Um, but Tocqueville was a straight-up Frenchman writing about America. And that's going to be the next book I'm going to look at, is, is Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Uh, the, this edition, this volume of Library, of, by the Library of America has just the one work, just Democracy in America. It's about 800 pages. And I'm not quite sure the format I'm going to go. It, it is going to be eight episodes, but I am going to try to be a little bit as topical as possible. And I'm gonna to try to maybe even write some scripts or be a little bit more focused. I don't quite know. I, I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm going to approach this work. Um, I have done long works like that before, like uh, An American Tragedy, but um, I'm gonna put some thought before I start recording on how I want to approach Tocqueville, but um, I hope to do something a little bit different. So that will be coming up, that's the next work. So. I recorded a bunch of these Jefferson ones back to back, so I have plenty of time to think that through. So it'll, it will come shortly if you're listening 
to this. You'll, you'll see what I'm doing with that. So it's going to be Tocqueville for eight episodes, and then we're going to do Lincoln. And Lincoln's going to be another like 14 episodes or so, because that's two volumes. Um, and then that'll be the end of this mini-series on, on American political writers. So anyways, um, thanks as always for listening. Um, thanks for sharing this journey with me through the works of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, please leave your own thoughts about Thomas Jefferson below um, or send me an email. Anything you have to say, I'll try to respond to in a future episode. Um, I sometimes get responses about the Philip Dick stuff I've been working on, but uh, not so much on, on these American writers. So if you do have any thoughts on any of this, please, please let me know. I'd, I'd really love to hear from you. So that's it for now. Uh, I will see you next time with Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America.